one of the, the things that I think was helpful to me as a field event coach over the years is that I never felt like I had to coach them to perfection. I only had to coach them to close to perfection and then allow their movement organization processes to kind of take them the rest of the way. And that's how you ultimately keep it simple. That was Boo Shaxnader, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So I've been utilizing the airbands. I really enjoy it, both the, the feeling while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual results of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. Uh, they've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into airbands. Uh, SimplyFaster.com also has B Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro. And this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another podcast, and thanks for joining me here. In my own coaching and athletic years, I have absolutely loved looking into all the details, all the complexities that go into training. I've looked and dug into the details of motor learning, biomechanics of a variety of skills, all the ways you can put together a training program and all the individualizations. There's almost infinite details that you can dig into when it comes to training an athlete or just the human body. But it's always been a bit of a pendulum for me in terms of uh, swinging back and forth or swinging one way into all these details and then swinging the other way, pulling out what is useful and what can be delivered practically to the athletes that you're working with in a way that allows them to really cater to their own strengths, the, the way they learn and the way they operate and not confusing them with all this minutia in the process. In terms of training and how to manage details and how to take a lot of complex information and really design a training program that maximizes the things that are important and that tries to do so as smoothly as possible without overcomplicating things. I love talking and learning from Coach Boo Schexnader. Boo is a current strength coach and former jumps coach at Louisiana State University. He is regarded internationally as a leading authority in training design for speed and power. Boo has been a previous guest on this podcast twice, talking about various speed and power training setups. And in a world of complexity and nearly infinite ways to train athletes, Boo knows the art of managing athletic performance by using training means and setups that really directly get that intention across to the athlete and are not more complex than they need to be. On the show today, Boo will go into detail on his own upbringing, early mentorships, and experiences in coaching that have led him to become the coach he is today. And he'll also speak on his important experiences in working rehab that helped him uh, with more of the high performance elements of that training spectrum. 
Boo will talk on the process of how far he goes on the complexity rung in the weight room. So what movements are, what, uh, what's the break where things become more complex and you're not actually getting what you need to get out of the gym? He'll talk about the same thing from the standpoint of technique and skill acquisition and how he works with the self-organizing ability of the athlete to get that final result without overcomplicating things. Finally, Boo will share some coaching thoughts, speaking on how he focuses on athletes' strengths and doesn't get carried away with hammering away at their weaknesses and how it's an athlete's strengths that will rise their highest level. Boo will also speak on his opinion and usage of heavy partial lifts in the gym, so heavy step-ups, heavy quarter squats, and how he'll use those in context of the total training system. It's always amazing to be able to sit down and chat with Boo Schexnader, and I'm excited to get you guys this show. Let's get on to it. Episode 295. Boo, welcome back to the show. It's awesome to have you here again. Uh, thanks, Jules. It's always uh, good to do things with you. I always uh, enjoy our conversations. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, the first two shows, and we'll have a lot of this on this one, but uh, the first two were just tons of nuts and bolts, practical information, and I know this one will be too, but I wanted to I just ask maybe some more philosophical questions. And well, the first one just really is actually where a bit about your development and some of the early mentors and coaching that you had. And what were some of the big shifts in your coaching career or mentorship that really led you to where you are now? Well, when I, I got started coaching in high school, in the high school level, and I honestly never thought I would do anything but that. I thought maybe one day I might end up being a high school principal or something like that. So all of this was uh, uh, just kind of a uncharted territory as far as my direction my career kind of took. You know, my my high school coaches, people like these names won't mean anything to your listeners, but people like Waggis Back and Email and Isidore were very influential to me because they kind of showed me that athletics could be a really positive thing. And, you know, I, I, I had a positive experience in high school athletics because of those people. And that was kind of, I think, what really lit the fire as far as me wanting to coach and so forth. You know, so I got started in coaching and uh, I was also really fortunate when I got started in high school coaching. I was doing fairly well. I had a buddy named Dave Anderson who coached at a high school who was a really outstanding coach and we became good friends. And a lot of my early professional development were pretty much conversations with him, to be honest with you. And then uh, when I was coaching high school, I guess it was around 83 or something like that, uh, is when the LSU staff turned over. And that's when Dan Paff and Seagrave and those guys, you know, came to LSU. And I was about an hour away. Uh, so I would drive up and, you know, come watch practices with Paff. And Dan kind of took me under his wing. And he was probably the single biggest mentor I had as far as, you know, technical knowledge and actual coaching practice and those types of things. He, he, uh, he taught me a lot, but I always say more importantly than what he taught me was I, I was at a stage in my career when I think when I was starting to see things maybe a little differently than other people saw them and I maybe had some insights that nobody else was having or a few other people were having. And Dan was the person who um, gave me the, uh, I guess the courage is a good word, or, or the encouragement to follow my eye and follow my thoughts instead of trying to stay within the boundaries of typical coaching culture. He says, no, no, you're, you're seeing it right. You need to investigate what you're seeing. You need to go along and trust yourself. And that was a big thing for me as well. I'm, I've always been kind of the coach that if you give me an idea, I can build on it. I'm not an overly creative person, but if you give me the seed, I can grow it. 
And he was very helpful for me in that regard. So, you know, and, and the other part of your question, the shifts in philosophy or whatever, I guess we always have these landmark points in our careers and whatever. And, you know, when I looked at the question, I thought about the question, I, it, it was more of an evolution than any major shifts. But I think the earliest thing was when I finally understood training specificity, you know, and I understood that I developed a non-respect, a healthy non-respect for coaching culture, understanding that so much coaching practice is traditional and needs to be fairly evaluated. And when I started looking at specificity of training and those types of things and started realizing that there were certain things that really didn't make sense that everybody did, and I developed the courage to pull those out of my training program, well, that was a big help. I, I think the other bright light that came on is when I really got involved in the rehab field, because I always had philosophies about how to train athletes, and I did it, and I was really successful with, with those philosophies. But then when I started doing rehab and I, I started to develop a healthy disrespect for traditional rehab processes, to be honest with you, because I kind of approached it more from the standpoint of what I knew and what I understood as opposed to what had traditionally been done. And when I realized that I was typically getting athletes back to competition much, much faster than what was traditionally expected, that kind of underlined those training philosophies. And then when I went back to actual coaching, I coached with a new level of confidence and a new level of appreciation of specificity because of the fact that I saw such radical results in the rehab field. So I would think that that's kind of where I am now in my personal development. And that's why I really enjoy doing rehabs is because they're challenging and in, in their own way. And each one is unique in its own way. And you always have to think on your feet and you always have to be very disciplined about staying true to the tenets of rehabilitation and the basic principles that govern your philosophy. Yeah, I'd like to ask you about both of those things uh, in the sense of what was being done and how you kind of, I guess, you know, transcended that or just or started a different path. And I like the history element in the sense it's funny to think the 80s is history the 90s is history <laughs> you know, like and the 80s were my best years actually but that's that's a sad other story <laughs> i think it's funny i you know we're in this like this crazy connected podcast age now and i, I like you know it's fun to talk about ideas but i also like talking about well where were things at a certain point and it is interesting too i mean the 80s was a, a real powerful time for track and field on the high school level in the United States, I feel like compared to now, I mean, you saw a lot of really good performances, the relay performances and things, and I, I maybe just more interest, but I'm curious, like, what were the, and I've talked with Tony Holler about this a little bit too, like, what were coaches, what was happening, and then what, and how did you change things? And so, maybe, I mean, it probably is, you know, I would imagine just more like, more volume, less specificity, those kind of things, uh, but what were some things, what was the way it was being done? in that time period? And then what was the direction that you took? Like, I will, you know, I'm going to take this direction and switch things here. There was nothing that was really science-based and it was pretty much all about, you know, the early eighties was pretty much all about getting an athlete tired, you know, and it was a lot of philosophy was we, we, we appreciated and understood the need to work hard. I don't think that we really understood yet the idea of working smart, the idea of specificity of training and so forth. I don't think anybody had any understanding whatsoever of the nervous system's function in speed and power events in sports, in spite of the fact that that's the single most important system. 
you know, I think the thing that was very helpful for me is when I got involved in coaching education real early. And uh, I was um, one of the people who was very instrumental in writing a lot of the very seminal uh, coaching education materials was a guy named Roger Inoka. So those seminal texts actually had a section, had curriculum on the nervous system and neuromuscular development. And that was groundbreaking at those times. And even though everybody didn't fully understand it yet, we kind of knew this is where we needed to be investigating and such. So, so it's a, it's, it was a time when there were some trailblazers who were just starting to see good work. The Eastern Bloc was big into the drugs at that time, and there was a need to catch up and the need to catch up. And technology and advances in sports science were seen as the, rev, as the avenue to get caught up with those types of cultures and so forth. And so it was just an interesting time, to be honest with you. Yeah, it definitely seems like, I mean, the the college sector of training or university professional is definitely, you know, now fast forward 30 years has taken that on or it's, it's more standard practice, but you still see just rampant that just conditioning, just, just run yourself hard, work hard, no respect for the nervous system until I just insanely rampant in high school. And it's like, you wonder why in 30, 40 years, like, I don't know, it's, it's like, why is that like some some people's just nature to train people that way. And, you know, obviously they're not reading anything or learning outside of the, what they know. But. No, no, you're right. Most, a lot of coaches coach the way they were coached and a lot of coaches do what they were, what's always been done, you know, and it's gotten a lot better. And I, I think that in, in the sport, I spend most of my time in track and field. I think the record progressions and so forth kind of indicates that coaching is getting better and better and more and more coaches are doing a better job. But I always kind of say that, Coaching education is kind of like stomping roaches. You know, you you see a roach on the floor, you step on it, you kill it. There's 50 roaches you never see, you know. And so for every roach that you kill, for every coach that you improve, there's still others out there, you know. So, But that's not a good excuse not to try to kill as many roaches as you can. It's not a good excuse not to step on that first roach, you know. So ultimately, my whole life, I've been involved in coaching education. And you, you get a class of 40 people, you teach 40 people to leave and are transformed and become great coaches, you know, 10 leave and are kind of transformed and become a little better coaches. And there's some that just continue to, wow, that wasn't that great. And then they go back and do what they were supposed to do, but you can't let that discourage you. You know, you just continue to fight the battle so that the athletes have better experiences. Ultimately that's you know what it's all about is making sure that the athletes have the best experiences that they possibly can in those programs. And that's hopefully why we do sports. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's it is funny too how it's I feel it's it's hand in hand that the the progress an athlete is making by training more intelligently, and then how happy they are. It, it's kind of like one and the same in many ways when you make that uh-huh. shift in training. And so the rehab, though, I just I think it's interesting too. I, I like having track and field coaches on this show because it's a close cousin or relative to strength, formal strength and conditioning. It's it's all kind of the same, and rehab too. They're all kind of the same. They draw from a lot of the same wells, and not kinda. They they are the same. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I I agree. And so, what what did you learn? What were some specifics that you learned from rehab that you wouldn't have learned elsewhere that you took into your uh, track and field strength coaching practice? I don't know that there was anything that I wouldn't have learned elsewhere, but it was it certainly underlined and put exclamation points on some of the things that I always kind of felt strongly about. And it was a huge experience of affirmation. Like, I remember the very first rehab I ever did, there was this hotshot football player who got torn ACL and 
um, had rehabbed and went to a physical therapist rehab, went pretty good for a while. And then, of course, everything plateaued. And there was this, I get a knock on the door. And it just happened that I had coached the young man's father and taught the young man's mother. And I get a knock on the door. Coach, we want you to do uh, my son's ACL rehab. So I said, well, I, I really don't do that. He says, well, coach, you're going to do this one. You know, so all of a sudden now I have to do this ACL rehab with this super talented athlete. And I started thinking, well, what am I going to do? And then I said, well, I'm no dummy. I can figure this out. So what I did was I kind of just started thinking about the things that I were, were important and what I did with training regular athletes, healthy athletes. And I figured, well, how can I take those same principles and dumb them down to the level where this athlete is at this point in this debilitated state? And it was very successful. It was successful beyond everyone's expectations. And it caught the eye of lots of people. Then I got lots and lots of rehabs to do after that, you know, that worked. But to make a long story short, I think being outside of the field was kind of an advantage because maybe I had a, a fresher viewpoint. Maybe I had a little less bias. Maybe I had a few less voices in my head and a few less voices in my ears, you know, as far as telling me what to do or not to expect this, or I had no preconceived notions of, in, of what this was going to look like. And I think the fact that I came in with a totally fresh mind and maybe an outside view was a tremendous advantage. And I think I kind of try to stay based in what I do with healthy athletes as opposed to shifting over to what I traditionally see done with non-healthy you know, in, in the, in the traditional rehab field. And, and that's not to poo-poo that field. There are people in that field that do fantastic work. In fact, I have mentors in that field that when I kind of get stuck on a problem, I, I go to people like Bill Rose up in Philadelphia and people like that, that are extremely helpful, have been extremely helpful to me. And I don't mean to disrespect it at all, but physical therapy, just like coaching rehab, just like coaching, you know, there's this traditional coaching culture. And when you're in the center of that coaching culture, you typically find pretty average work. And I would dare say that the same thing is true with doctors and lawyers and everyone else, you know. But once you get to the edges of those coaching cultures, mm-hmm. at the fringes, you start to see people who are pioneering a little bit and doing really productive work. And I, I you know, if you're in the middle of the bell curve, it only means you're average. It doesn't mean you're good. It means you have lots of peers, but that's not what we're ultimately after, you know. I had a person one time who kind of challenged me on something I did. And uh, his, his challenge was, um, is what you're doing peer reviewed? And I said, why should I care? You know, so I figured this out. So I have to wait until all the rest mm-hmm. of you guys catch up, you know, and understand it before I can actually use it. You know, so the peer review process is an important part of educational research and so forth. But at the same time, it's also ball and chain that, we kind of drag around when we try to advance, you know, coaching cultures and such, you know? Yeah. It's really interesting. You said, yeah, you said, um, coaching, like strength and conditioning, track and field, rehabilitation, they're all the same thing. I, and I, what I perceive as, as I like kind of picture you doing rehab, a lot of it, I feel like is the mentality, like rehab, you would think like compared to doing like just their low intensity therabands and, and those types of things, it's like, no, here is a solid progression of simple exercises. Like it's almost to me, I feel like the something that maybe transcends is like always having a progression, always improving, always putting more force in the system. Even and I, I sometimes I don't like to simplify it that much, but in I mean, in many cases, it is just that. Like I think that's where 
to me, that's almost where that intersection of strength and conditioning and like the rehab, late stage rehab type thing. It's like this, this, um, this desire to continue to get better by enhance, by increasing the force in the system. I don't know if that makes sense, but, but just like more it high intensity. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, more high it intensity. It makes perfect approach. sense. Yeah. 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 No, you're, you're 100% right. And, and the key word you said there was for applying force to the system, meaning that, you know, traditionally in rehab, we've kind of been volume based. Let's do more and more and more. And we haven't appreciated the intensity variable, you know? So I think that's one of the basic tenets of rehab in general is that over the course of time, you progress intensity and, and not volume. You know, you need a body of work. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, it's so many people, you know, oh, we were able to do 10. Now we can do 20. So we're better and we're closer to where we were and closer to be able to compete now. But that's not the case at all because the competitions are intense. It's intensity is the variable that you need to progress. So when you're doing something, you got to think in terms of faster. You got to think in terms of higher tissue load. You got to think in terms of more impact. Sometimes you have to think in terms of heavier. So those are intensity based variables, not volume based variables. And ultimately, you have to kind of keep your eye on the target and understand that that's what you're ultimately trying to progress. And, you know, it's, it's easy to, to fill out a form and say, we did 10 last week, but this week we could do 20 and mark progress, you know, and turn that in and everybody, the superiors look, oh, great, we're making progress, we're effective. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you haven't gotten any choice, any closer to being able to get this athlete ready to compete. You know, ultimately, any time you see significant volume increases in a rehab, that's like fool's goal. You think you've progressed, but you really haven't done anything in that regard. And, and that, those, that word you use, that, that, that underlines the whole thing, yeah. Yeah, it makes, makes sense. So one thing that, you know, as I have talked to you a few times and through the course of this podcast, one thing I really, and this is something I think about a lot, is the simple and the complex. And not making the simple too complex, but then also not dumbing down things that are more complex than they should be. So if you had practical advice, because <laughs> uh, I ask this for myself too, because I'm, I'm the type of coach that I want to learn everything and I want to take everything to its detailed parts and I want to understand how it works. But I know throughout my coaching career in the past, I've done stuff that is probably more complex than it needed to be. You know, the athletes, I think, succeeded in spite of many cases. <laughs> <laughs> We've all done that. Uh, yeah. So, but what's your take on, maybe we could just focus on a few key areas. I mean, you could take this however you want, but how do you arrive at the place where you can make things optimally simple, if that makes sense? Well, I think the key thing to keeping things simple is understanding what you're trying to accomplish. Because I, I think a lot of people go out and try to develop an athlete knowing what they want to accomplish, but they really don't understand what they're trying to accomplish from the standpoint of what body systems are responsible for that particular improvement. You know? And as long it, and so therefore you're basically walking, you know, you're, you're trying to move forward, but you really don't have a target in place. You know? So being able to target very specific things, being able to target very specific goals is ultimately what you're after. And then you get crafty and figure progressions of how to get to those particular goals and such. And, and so much of what we do in, in traditional coaching cultures is just filler work. You know, it's, it's things that are either been traditional or things that will make the athlete tired. So they kind of give us a feeling of, yes, we've progressed, but that isn't necessarily the best. And, it, and it's hard to blame coaches in a lot of ways. It's hard to blame rehab people in a lot of ways because there's so many, there's so much stuff out there and there's so much uh, commercially driven interest, you know, not that that's necessarily bad either. I, I personally feel right now that one of the things that holds back lots and lots of coaches is there's the technology. 
I mean, there's so much technology out there that so many coaches have become data collectors, you know, and they're really wired in. And because they're they're kind of cutting edge in one way or another, but they really don't know what they're doing. They have all this data and everything. What's really funny, an anecdote is I remember when I first got started doing clinics and things like that about 35 years ago, you know, people used to talk behind my back after the talk. Oh, yeah, that guy's good. He's, he's science-based. He's science-based. Now I give the same talk and now they say, oh, I like that guy. He's common sense based, you know, so so we've gone so far on the whole technological side that I think that these data collectors are starting to outnumber the coaches, to be honest with you. And sometimes we don't even know what we're measuring. And there's so much of that stuff out there that I think coaches often need your you, you get away from timeless truth because of something you may have noticed in data, or maybe you read a research study or whatever, next thing you know, you're totally revamping on something that might not be totally valid, or you may not have understood completely in the first place. So I, I just I just think that the ability to kind of have a simple understanding of what you're trying to accomplish is where all of this begins. And then I also think that coaches end up chasing a lot of things that just aren't that important, to be honest with you. Pathological issues are a good example. You know, like I get every... I would say at least once a week, I get an email from the coach who tells me my right, my kid, when he, my kid sprints, the right arm swings wider than the left arm or the right toe points out and the left toe points straight ahead. You know, these little kind of things. And they're obsessive mm -hmm. you know, over those types of things and don't realize that those types of little pathological issues kind of lie outside the boundaries of what you're trying to teach. And ultimately, you know, those things get addressed in the training program. And I think you get distracted by these things that just aren't very important. You know, there's certain bandwidths that you try to chase. You try to get athletes within these particular bandwidths. Technically, you get them within certain bandwidths of speed qualities, power qualities. And once you get them in those bandwidths, you kind of have to trust the athletes to some extent to do what they do. You know, our bodies have movement organization processes, you know, and one of the, the things that I think was helpful to me as a field event coach over the years is that I never felt like I had to coach them to perfection. I only had to coach them to close to perfection and then allow their movement organization processes to kind of take them the rest of the way. And that's how you ultimately keep it simple, you know, understanding that they can kind of connect the dots the rest of the way. You know, when you have an athlete who's trending in the right direction and you're trying to improve skills, they're trending in the right direction. If they're trending in the right direction, just shut the hell up, you know, mm -hmm. and the body's movement organization processes kind of take over and, and trust them to bring them home the rest of the way and get involved when things aren't going as well. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the Shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. 
let's get on back to the show. Yeah. I like to think of it. Yeah, I, I like, where is it super simple and where is it more complex? And it's like a lot of it, I feel like, is you're letting the body, the brain, the body, the nervous system take care of some of that really complicated stuff that there's so many things going on that we can't understand it entirely. I mean, it's mind blowing, like the you know, ball and socket joints with all these degrees of freedom. It's like, <laughs> I, no matter how much I learn, I don't think I will ever be able to completely figure out w- exactly why this person did this little nuance that they, you know, like it's just, there's, you have to hand that baton over sometimes to the the body and how they decided to solve that problem on a specific level. No, that's why coaching is such a fun game is because there are an infinite number of variables. You know, I see, always say, you know, in, in chess, the rook can only move one way, the knight can only move one way and whatever, but in coaching, you got all infinite numbers of variables and nobody will ever figure it all out. We don't have enough years in our lifetimes to figure it all out. But that's the challenge of it, ultimately, is just the complexity of it and kind of figure those things out. You know? Yeah, I feel like, yeah, once like the once an athlete has the base level attractors, the basic, they're in the basic bandwidth of movement. It's like everything we do beyond that, that we try to really perfect it, I guess you could say, the outside of letting the athlete organize, self-organize, I think could definitely be where yeah we get we try to get too complicated counterproductive or wasting energy if we could have maybe there's low hanging fruits elsewhere in the program that we could dial in on more and so I, yeah maybe that's a way of kind of looking at it that's a good way of looking at it you know um for everything i teach whether it's jump mechanics or sprint mechanics or acceleration mechanics i i kind of got it boiled down to about three or four boxes that mm-hmm. need to be checked technically you know I remember when I when I first got started working with really good athletes years and years and years ago, I would be out there and I would we would be doing, say, accelerations, you know, and they would run an acceleration and I would coach. They'd run, I'd coach, they'd run, and I talked a lot and they got a lot better. And then there were a couple of years later where I kind of kept my mouth shut and they got better pretty much at the same rate when I was coaching real hard. And then I realized that a lot of it had to do with the power development you know, improving. A lot of it had to do with mobility improvements and so forth. You know, all of the things you were doing in the training program. And I kind of developed this philosophy that these things that we're teaching for the most part are not that complicated. You know, jump mechanics, acceleration mechanics, they're not that complicated. What you're really trying to do is build a body in a way that allows it to best execute those things, as opposed to thinking in terms of building the body indiscriminately and then teaching some foreign skill that isn't really natural. Yeah. Yeah. If the athlete, you're developing the horsepower and you're at least putting athletes in positions where they can organize, like they're pulling sleds, they're running up hills, they're, you know, doing, just doing those things, they're, you know, getting in the bandwidth. It seems like we could very easily overcomplicate it past that. I, you know, I, I feel like I should create a checklist of every like seasoned veteran coach who has said, I talk less now than I used to. (laughs) Like, I, I feel like there should be a big list uh, it made me think about when I was, um, and I need to think about that more because I, I just love, and I think, you know, it doesn't like come from a bad place. We want to help athletes. We want to give them something to focus on. And oh, yeah. especially in the private sector, I feel like, especially like where it's not necessarily like a university where someone is like paying for your time, you almost feel obligated. Like, you know, if an athlete comes in and they're paying for <laughs> my time and I just let them, you know, run five, 10 times and I'm like, all right, cool. Good job. You know, keep it up, which. I'm trying to frame that differently now these days, but it was, um, I was at Rafe Kelly, uh, who's parkour human movement teacher, uh, his retreat. And one of the, the things we brought up in the coaching circle was a research study. And it was like, 
they they gave feedback. I don't know what the skill was, but they gave feedback to the athlete. There was three groups. One was feedback every rep. One was feedback like every, I don't know, three reps. And the other one was feedback every 10 reps. And the the one with every 10 reps was like the best. Like that one was... Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just like, that's, that's it. Like <laughs> we just have to create, lay out the guidelines, say things when completely appropriate. And, and other than that, just love the ability to watch the, the athlete figure it out over time. I, it's, I, I've heard that from so many coaches and it's something that I continue to work on as well. I need to, maybe I need to like, just let that continue to sink in on how to achieve that lower, lower frequency of instruction. Uh, it's easier yeah, to do it in a group setting too, I think, when there's more athletes to not necessarily feel like you need to say anything versus one-on-one. Yeah, I um, I, I always practice, I try to approach every section or every session, I should say, with a, um, some type of strategy as far as uh, feedback is concerned. You know, whether I'm going to fade, you know, or whether I got a bandwidth, you know, meaning I'm not going to say anything as long as the athlete's kind of within certain boundaries, or sometimes maybe it might be self-directed where they ask for feedback when they feel like they're kind of missing something or whatever, because feedback addiction is a real thing. You know, it's, it's not the healthiest thing for the athlete to, you know, for you to say something every single time. Now in the earliest stages of learning, yes, of course, that's different. But once an athlete's kind of progressed beyond a point, you know, to, to have to interject after every single repetition uh, isn't the best thing. First of all, it cuts off their, their own feeling. They quit feeling their bodies and start just listening to you as far as the input, and that's not good. But more importantly, you know, the whole psychological feedback addiction, you know, you so they make a mistake, you correct it. Make a mistake, you correct it. Well, at some point in time, it kind of develops into a psychological construct where it's like, okay, coach, I'm broke. You got to fix me. And that's not a good place to be as a coach or as an athlete, you know? Yeah, I love that. Is there anything that you, like for those athletes who are coming back to you and saying, hey, coach, can you tell me, you know, like repeatedly, like too much? Or is there kind of like guidelines that you lay out before the season, the session in terms of them understanding how this works in the sense of them being a, their own self-learner, that that type of thing? I talk to them in the session about just that, you know, like when I give them a little quick cue and then I kind of just nod my head after the next rep or whatever. You know, and I see that they're a little, you can always tell by their body language that they're a little bug that coaches, is coach really watching and that kind of stuff. I said, look, I'll just walk over to them and I'll put it in layman's terms. I say, look, you're really close technically, you know, and there's, I always tell them there's two things. There's technique and then there's rhythm. And you've got the technique. Rhythm comes with repetitions. And after I tell them that, then typically they smile and feel a little better and they know they're not being ignored. Mm-hmm. And they go forward from that point, you know, and also we talk a little bit about the whole paralysis by analysis kind of thing from time to time as well. And, and I also kind of pat them on the back. Look, you're a good athlete. You know, your body's going to trend toward the correct if we just kind of get it going in that direction. And right now it's going in that direction. So let's just get some reps. And if anything gets worse, I'll jump in and I'll tell you. So those are the kind of conversations that I have with athletes that seem irked with the fact that they're not getting that constant you know, verbal diarrhea. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I know back when I was, I was competing in college and, and I, I was, I was the type of athlete who actually almost didn't want feedback that much or, or sometimes, but I, I did really well just kind of figuring it out myself. And then one of my main training partners, he wanted the coach there. He wanted like, you know, feedback all the time. We were like just totally opposite in that perspective. And so for me, it's like, yeah, learning because I am not that person who wants feedback all the time, learning how to communicate to those people I, i'm always looking for 
like thoughts and ideas there. So I think that's 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 really um, yeah. it's good to be aware of. And and of course, for your listeners, you know, um, we're talking about this, but this is once you reach a decent level of proficiency. You know, there's nothing wrong with talking a lot when a person is doing something for the very first time. You know, when they've been in the very earliest stages of learning. Yeah, there should be lots of feedback. There should be lots of communication and whatever. But over the course of time, that should move into some more beneficial type of strategy as far as doling out feedback. Yeah. For the gym, I think you, know, you talk about when I'm doing high force or anything. I mean, the gym or, you know, anything that's really like simple and high force. So we could think heavy, quote unquote, heavy plyometrics, just gym squats, those types of things. What's the most complicated that you'll get? in that situation like i know olympic lifts are kind of co- complex compared to a squat but like what where's the where you like draw the line like this is too there's too many degrees of freedom there's too much extra stuff going on here like at, at what point does that your alarms kind of go off where now maybe we aren't accomplishing what we should be accomplishing in this situation when i look at my highest intensities of training the olympic lifts are probably about as technically complicated as i get that's a, that's about my ceiling, I guess you might say. You know, you know when when you're trying to achieve really high levels of power output, the movement patterns can't be overly complicated. If they're overly complicated, then you've you you can't accomplish that. You know, you can either be fancy or you can be fast. You can't be both. You can be fancy or you can be heavy. You can't be both. So you have to keep the movement patterns really simple. So this is why when I'm trying to reach my absolute highest levels of intensity. You know, it's really basic movement patterns are really simple things, you know, so for, you know, on the track, we'll spring. Well, that's a basic movement pattern, right? That's something that everybody should be able to do and that you've taught. Plyometrics, you know, I've got a bajillion different plyometric exercises, but when it comes time to crown the program with the highest levels of intensities, it's extremely simple, double leg typically box jumps, you know, you know, death jumping type of constructs, really simple, fall off a box, hit the ground, bounce up onto another box, done, you know, so it's nothing complicated there at all. Because again, a simple construct allows for the intensity that you want. In the weight room, I do ballistic stuff, you know, squat jumps, things of that nature with different loads and so forth. And I'll do heavy cleans, you know, because again, like I said, the probably the single most technically complicated thing I do in a high intensity format would be the Olympic lifts. Anything that I do that's more technically complicated than that typically is done for some other purpose, some other place in a program for, you know, stimulation or endocrine management or whatever the case may be. But my most intense things, like if you come to my practices and it's like specific prep where we're really trying to make a significant advancement in speed, power and strength levels on the most critical days the activities are the absolute simplest of all, because that's how it's got to be. Again, the more complicated the movement pattern is, the less confident the athletes are going to be able to be. That's why I'm not a, that's why my double leg work, for example, never totally disappears from my plyometric program or from my weight training program. It's because anytime I want to load to the maximum levels, whether it be loading with weight or loading with speed, you're going to be in a more confident situation, be able to exude more power if you're capable of, if you're going double leg as opposed to single leg. Now, I do lots of single leg stuff, don't get me wrong, 
But again, I do that for stimulation purposes. I do that for balance. I do that for endocrine management, these other specificity and other reasons. But I always keep it super simple when I'm trying to reach those highest levels of uh, intensity. And then, of course, the other thing that's important is the simpler the movement pattern, typically the more muscle mass is going to be involved. More muscle mass involved equals a greater endocrine response. And that's what you're looking for as well. You're looking for endocrine improvements. You're looking for endocrine development as well. So that's ultimately it. Why I'm kind of a simple bilateral sprint person when it comes to those highest levels of training. With the single leg, what's like, what's the extent of, I'm sure you do lots of different single leg movements, but what, how complex would you possibly get? Like, I mean, beyond, I guess, maybe like a box step up or something. Like, what are some example of the like the simple single leg type work that you will do in your program. And then what point is it like, okay, this is getting too like a single leg clean or something, or like a, you know, like a, where people are stepping up on multiple boxes, right? Where you're starting to get, okay, this is getting a little complex. How far does your single leg work go in the scope of your uh, training program? I'm pretty simple. Like, honestly, I have, I'm philosophically, I'm kind of opposed to like, single joint kind of isolation stuff as far as the main weight training program is concerned. I'll do a little bit of that stuff in circuit forms for endocrine purposes. But so basically, uh, single leg work, I'm a lunge person, I'm a step up person and variations thereof, different heights, boxes, horizontal versus vertical kind of trajectories, those types of things. So that's basically it for me. I, I have experimented a little bit with single leg Olympics just a bit. And I feel like they're a nice variation, to be honest with you, but you can't build your program around them because if you build your program around them, you're compromising your power output and so forth. So the experimentation I've done with those has been nice from the standpoint of we've been training for eight months and we're looking for something a little different to kind of stimulate the body in a little different way. So it's a nice change of pace, so to speak, as far as adaptation stimulus is concerned. But other than that, that's about it. So it's really not overly complicated. Of course, in the plyometric program, I have a vast array of single leg activities that I do horizontal, vertical, in place, and different plyometric categories and so forth. And I kind of categorize those depending upon the need of that particular day and such. But in the weight room, it's pretty simple. My, my weight room is like really short and sweet for your, for your, so that your listeners know typically my athletes, when they go into the weight room on a main, on a key lifting day, it's like three exercises, you know, they an Olympic lift, they'll do a lower body lift, they'll do maybe an upper body lift, and then we're out of there. Because I, I deal mostly with skinny people and skinny people <laughs> ability to lift. They're just not built to lift. I have found that by, you know, doing like six sets of one Olympic lift, maybe four or five sets of some lower body, four or five sets of some upper body, that you get so much more quality. And the athletes become more risk You know, you give them a long list of things to do in a weight room. Well, the first thing they're looking at is how am I going to make it to the bottom of the paper? So they start pacing themselves at the beginning and such. And I just want them to be risk takers. I want them going all out. And if I give them a fairly short list of things to do, they just do it way better. And that's been very, very fortunate to me. When I'm dealing with big bodies, like five lifts is typically like the most I'll do. Now, that's not counting circuit that day, but mm-hmm. I'm talking about the main key lifting day. Yeah, it makes sense with what we've I've had discussions on this podcast in the past episodes about um like that narrower archetype, that skinnier archetype or the the narrow infrasternal angle athlete who we don't want to give them as much lifting as the wider that that wider sturdier athlete. They they can't handle quite as much of it and you know in reverse with sprinting possibly, you know. Yeah. 
And just reverse with sprinting possum. I mean, sprinters are built, uh, skinny people are built to sprint, not to, not to lift. So do more sprinting and less lifting. Big people are built to lift and not to sprint. Do less sprinting, do more lifting. I mean, sounds pretty simple to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I always think of it too. It's like wherever you're getting your highest outputs, like are you getting your highest output sprinting while you're racing or in the weight? You're, I mean, hopefully both, right? But like you're guaranteed if you're good at sprinting and jumping, you're guaranteed to get really high outputs doing those things. And then the weight room is you're going to help for sure. But it's not like you're not going to create that athlete by putting extra, a bunch of extra exercises or trying to fill that hour. That was something I had a frustration with. And not, I mean, I, I kind of worked around it, but in my eight years as a college strength coach where I was working full time, it's like just the way it is, you always have an hour. Like if you're the strength coach and you're versus I think in track, there's probably some more flexibility sometimes because there's some situations I know it's, it's, it's just kind of funny with the NCAA and, you know, the strength coaching and that dynamic. But in division three, at least where I was the track coach and the strength coach, we would, yeah, we would lift for like 25, 30 minutes. Like, but then when I'm, the full-time strength coach, well, I, you have these athletes for an hour. So it's like, well, what do I, <laughs> I mean, it, it often <laughs> didn't either, it, and it either didn't always work out like that. Like I, with track, I remember, I think we had it. So everyone is in 40 minute shifts except for the throwers. But then with swim and some of the other sports, like not all the others, but a lot of times, like I would fill the space. Like we just play a game for the first 10, 15 minutes because <laughs> I got an hour. I'm like, I don't know, like, let's just play a game, you know, and then we do some body weight holds at the end but the lifting ended up being a shorter sweeter period in the middle then and that's what it transformed into over time i was like this is just so much more productive because like you said if it's an hour of lifting you get a lot of kind of sour faces like it's not it's just like let's focus on when we're gonna lift we're gonna lift like but if you kind of draw it out it kind of becomes a little i don't know i just think it becomes a little less potent and and intentional so it's an interesting situation there where it's like you have this hour block that you're expected to fill so trying yeah, to- you know what you said, it, uh, struck two things you said there struck, ner- struck a nerve with me. The first one is one of the biggest problems I have and, and shifts I have to get athletes to make is just not to be in a rush in the weight room, like to take the extra time between the sets, you know, so that they can show a little bit more quality. You know, they typically equate, you know, working at a fast pace in the weight room is like work ethic or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's about every athlete pretty good athlete that I work with at some point in time, I got to have a conversation with them about slowing down in the weight room, taking a little more time between the sets so they can actually be a little more productive and such. I remember when I was a young coach, I'd always get upset because there was, I wanted to go home at six in the evening and I've got two guys who are still hanging around in the weight room, you know, and all these guys are messing around. And then I started realizing they were the strongest guys. And I realized why they were the last ones to leave the weight room. And I started to value that. And and another thing that, that, I'd like to say, if you don't mind, that you said something that I thought was really wise. And, you know, different athletes are built for different things. And we talk how big people are built more to lift and high skinny people are built more to sprint, whatever. But that, that's why I'm not a huge, like, individualized workout person. Because I, it was something you said, and I, I forgot what the exact word was, but it was a genius word. And everybody has their strong point. And a lot of times their strong point is what's potentiating the, the work in their weak areas. So you got an athlete who's really great at sprinting, but really poor at lifting. So let's just lift and don't sprint as much. Well, the sprinting is really what potentiates the improvements in the lifting and vice versa. So that's why I'm not a huge, like, test this athlete, see where their strengths are and don't waste time on their strengths and invest in their weaknesses kind of person. I like to kind of keep it a more balanced program all along because you allow the strengths 
to bring along the weaknesses mm-hmm. if that Oh, yeah, that was me to a T in my 20s. Like I learned by just I mean, it, it didn't I didn't lose anything because I wasn't like getting paid to be a track athlete. But I, like when I was in high school, I played basketball. I was trying to dunk all the time and just like, <laughs> you know, added track and and lifted. But my lifting sessions in high school were like 20 minutes. I mean, sometimes I, remember I would just go down to my basement and do a few sets of step ups on a cinder block. Like that was my lifting. Mm-hmm. Like it took me 10 minutes. You know, it was but I were pound for pound, I was very strong. And it was like the more it through my 20s, the more time I spent in the gym, I did get stronger, but not that much. Like not and, and was not playing basketball, not racing people, not doing the things that I was innately wired to get that maximal activation. It's like I got and in many ways, I just became a better weightlifter too. like a little bit more muscle on the spinal <laughs> erectors, the back, you know, all those things that help you to power a bar. But I lost a lot of that just raw engine. And the best I had ever done, too, is when I was just my my head coach gave me shit. But like when I would just race my, the athletes I was training, I would do the sprints with them and all that. And like that was always when I was like the best. If I wasn't doing that, just like relative strength, everything was going to go was going to start to tail down. So it's like no matter how much extra work I did in the gym, I could never if I got away from that strength, it just it just was never a good thing. And so I I'm always very sensitive to that. No, I agree. I've always been a big balanced person. You know, I always look at, as far as strength development is concerned, I always look at the slow forms of strength, the explosive forms of strength, and the jump, you know, elastic forms of strength. And I just think they have to progress simultaneously. And if if, if any one of them gets ahead of the others, then you typically get worse, to be honest with you, if they don't progress in a balanced fashion. And the one that typically gets ahead of the others is the slow forms of strength. You know, I remember when I came back to LSU, when I came to LSU, there were a few guys hanging around from the previous regime who had, who had really good coaches then. And I remember these guys, they were putting like 315 on a bar and doing like single leg step ups and stuff, but they couldn't come close to their college PRs, mm. you know, and I think that that's exactly what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very much so. It's It's so funny, though, like the step ups, I have all these memories of training, like it's so much of it was on my own, it drove my coach nuts, but like. I remember the year I, I my best high jump was uh, 214 or seven feet. I remember that year going on spring break, not lifting a whole, I didn't lift on spring. I just, I maybe I did and one, there was a, like a rack in someone's house that I stayed at that I did a few sets of squats, but I remember coming back and like just, it was a 12 inch box and putting 315 on the bar and just easily just repping that, like with not a whole lot of lifting. It was just, it was the explosive competition. Like it was just in my system versus if I didn't have that, like if I wasn't competing, you know, every weekend, every other weekend and sprinting against my teammates, that just became so much more difficult. That specific motion. I think that squats I could do better later because it's just a little different. But anything that was specific then just was so driven by my, my explosive movements on the track or, or, or even back to basketball, I think it would be a similar thing. So it was just interesting how I could retain that specific strength through be, just being an explosive athlete and then taking that into the gym. No, you're totally correct. I'll tell you a quick story. I had a, um, I was coaching a throw one time and one of the features of our program for one cycle was like heavy squat, like six set of two, like 95% or something like that. And we got away from it for quite a while. I had a volunteer assistant, really good one, uh, who's doing outstanding work right now himself. But anyway, uh, after these squats disappeared from the program completely for a while, I put him back into the program and he saw the paper and he kind of I could see something was bugging him. I said, what's wrong? He says, well, he says, um, 
we haven't done this in a while. We can't just jump in and do six by two at 95%. I said, oh, yeah, we can. We'll be fine. And sure enough, we were fine. And that was an important lesson because what ultimately drives strength increases is tension applied to tissue, you know, and sprinting applies tension and, you know, ballistic stuff applies tension, plyometrics apply tension. And because we had still been doing really high level, maybe even higher level sprinting and ballistic lifts and plyometric stuff or whatever, he was able to jump right back in at the point at which he had left with the, the slower, more, you know, absolute strength types of stuff, whatever. So there, there's lots of ways to get strong. Intention is the underlying variable. You know, we strength and conditioning, we kind of have this bias that if I don't squat anymore, I'm going to get weak. And that's not the case at all. Yeah, it takes, it takes wisdom and faith in the program to be able to know when you can pull something and then be like, oh, yeah, we can jump back in here. We're good. Like, and to see how those explosive athletes can retain those abilities so easily when they're being explosive. Yeah. Yeah. I tweeted something the other day. Somebody sent me a little article. Somebody kind of knows my philosophy and so forth. Sent me a little article, Buffalo Bills don't squat in season. You know, so I saw it. Oh, that's interesting. And I just tweeted it. And of course, I got a variety. <laughs> of blah, blah, blah from the strength and conditioning world. And I was just trying to make a general point that, you know, there's lots of ways to get strong. Mm-hmm. There's lots of ways to stay strong, you know, and, and it, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that. Yeah, no, I, I saw that as well. And I, yeah, I, I just think it is kind of funny because they, you know, they were doing like some deadlifts and cleans. They were just not doing full compressive squats and they're being explosive and specifically in their sport. I don't see what's wrong with that. <laughs> it's like, no, I just, I just thought it was interesting funny. that they, have doing it a little differently is yeah. all. so i wasn't trying to create a radical trend or, or anything like that you know like my 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 uh, track athletes i don't squat them in season but we do every variation mm-hmm. of jump squat you can possibly imagine we olympic lift at like 100 percent intensities at times you know so it's not like we're not lifting it's, it's just lots of ways to do things you know? yeah there's i was just listening to a podcast where they were talking about like having not just one way to solve a problem you should have like 10 ways to solve a problem or just the divergent yeah. thinking to be like, all right, here's a problem. I could let, let me make a list of all the ways I could solve this, <laughs> you know, and deep squats don't have to be one of those ways. Yeah, exactly. And, and I do, them. they're a big part of what I do, you know, but um, it, it's like a mechanic. If you steal a mechanic's favorite wrench, does that mean that mechanic can't work on a car anymore? Yeah, <laughs> you should. Yeah, you should still be able to for sure. You know, it's funny, you mentioned the single leg cleans. I had a story of my own, and this was when I was an athlete. I, I tweaked my hamstring. I'd never done a single leg clean. And this was this was actually the year I, I high jumped my best. I did this was my like personal best year. So like a four foot triple jump PR this year. And I I mm-hmm. remember I, I tweaked my had a great fall season training, went home and just lifted for three weeks and didn't sprint because I was Wisconsin, it was freezing. And so I just lifted, came back and was doing some sprints and hurdles like on my own. No one else had really showed up. It was like kind of that weird transition day. And I was like, ah, we'll go run some hurdles. And I was feeling really powerful, but hadn't sprinted. And so I tweaked my hamstring a little bit going over a hurdle. And I couldn't like, it was funny because so for the next few weeks I was doing like, all right, well, I can't, I don't want to clean off two legs. So I'll just clean off one leg. So for two, three weeks, I was cleaning off one leg high jumping like hopping up on one leg to the bar and only it was like a like kind of like the paralympians do you know those amazing athletes who are hopping on one leg so i was doing that actually i jumped five eight off one leg only i was pretty stoked about that back in the day i'm sure it's people could impressive. do a lot, a lot better but uh so it was just all this like i had to totally reorganize my training came back and just lit it up for for like the whole rest of indoor season just was on fire like my my pr from the last year was six eight and three quarters six nine and i jumped over six ten almost every meet like but then so I had in my head, I was like, oh, single leg cleans. Like, 
And the funny thing is I actually gave those up for the rest of the year. I didn't think about it. It was just a nice thing to have for those three weeks. But then when I went to coach, I don't know, for some reason you like remember something, but you don't think about it in context. So I had athletes doing single leg cleans probably more often than probably what I needed to, you know, and it's like eventually like I, I just go to what you say, like it was nice as a novelty for a few weeks, but it's not the base. Like it's not, it's not even, the, the pattern is so even different than jumping too. It's just a nice novel thing to have in every now and then. And I think that's kind of what it was. It just filled a gap. It wasn't something that I should have. I think if I would have done it all year and tried to really get after it, it might have been counterproductive at some point versus just being a nice filler. You know, yeah, your training has to constantly vary. You know, variety in training is a very important thing because it keeps the stimulus fresh, I guess is a good word. Maybe it keeps the stimulus constantly changing. And, you know, if the stimulus changes, athletes remain sharp. And if you're training an athlete for 9, 10, 11 consecutive months, you're going to need just about every variation of every exercise you can get, you mm-hmm. know. And when people look at my training, why why this exercise now? Why this exercise now? It's just change for the sake of change sometimes. And I felt that those single leg variations kind of fell into that category. And one of my buddies, Peter Stanley, who coached Jonathan Edwards, the world record holder in the triple jump, uh, the single leg Olympics are like a really big part of what he does. You know, he kind of uses them a little bit more, but I could never really shoehorn them into my program the way that, that he could, you know, given the way everything was structured and wasn't about to reinvent my whole wheel. You know? Yeah. Last question. I know we don't have a lot of time left. I did want to touch on this because we were talking about like, you know, the main neural drive in the weight room and things like that. And one thing that I just, I've always kind of thought of in the sense of like, like heavy step ups, heavy quarter squats, those kind of things, obviously a lot of drive, but I always think, well, what if I could just get the same thing out of a plyometric is always kind of my thought or rationale. And so I'm just curious, not that I've, I've never used that kind of thing, but I'm curious what your take is on that, like the heavy, like really heavy partial step, like you know, eight inch box step ups or really heavy quarters, that kind of thing. Where does that fit into how you see like simple training? Because that's really simple, obviously, but very high intensity. Yeah. What do you think about that stuff? Uh, uh, those things have a small role in my program, but an important role. The reason being is that I am a firm believer that your your default when it comes to the slower forms of lifting squatting pressing those types of things i believe that your default setting should be full ranges of motion you know deep squats because i think that that the full ranges of motion establish balance like they engage the core more You're, you you don't you don't end up with posterior versus anterior imbalances you don't end up with core versus peripheral strength imbalances when you go deep you go full range of motion that stuff all disappears it all goes away like so many of your goofy running mechanics and goofy change of direction mechanics and such go away when you start using full ranges of motion. But there are exceptions. And there are certain times when certain sports or events where certain positions are important. You know, for example, you're a high jump. You know, if you plant your leg in the high jump, when you plant the leg, the leg's almost completely extended, probably about 170 degrees. And it flexes to about maybe 150, 140 degrees before you push off the ground. So you got to be strong in 140, 150 degrees. So there are strategic blocks in my programs where we'll go super heavy quarters, you know, but they're not my default. They're not mm-hmm. the thing that I live with. They're, they're, they're injected into the program for a given purpose, you know, and, and that's, that is that purpose. The purpose is specificity. So ultimately that's where I see those kind of things kind of fitting in is that there are things that you touch on to cover a specific base, address a specific need that's related to a sport. But I don't think they should be the default setting. If, you know, if, if they become the default, then you start exacerbating mm. the 
balances as opposed to alleviating the imbalance. Yeah, that makes sense. I love I love what you said about like the the deep the full range of motion deep squatting and actually seeing that clean up other things because that the more I learn about a good deep squat, especially a lot of the people who've been on who really in the Bill Hartman vein and like the biomechanics of squatting, it's like wow, I see all these things that a good deep squat brings from a full 3D perspective and how athletes who gain improvement in motor control in those ranges, yeah, like you could see that. And so, yeah, and I, I totally agree with you. I think that, yeah, if you're, if you're pounding like heavy partials all year, your nervous system ain't going to like you very much and you're compressing yourself and probably, yeah, like throwing yourself out of balance a little bit. And so it's like, yeah, strategic yeah. injections like nitrous oxide. I kind of like to think of it. You know, quick story. I, I got called in one time to work really good decathlete, you know, in a foreign country. I won't use names or anything like that. But anyway, I was brought in because this athlete was having some problems with the block start and the landing and the long jump and a couple other issues. So anyway, I'm going through his data and everything before we kind of get out to work. And I don't see anything about squats. Well, he doesn't squat anymore. Why not? Well, he had a knee problem two years ago and, you know, and we quit squatting. We just never put it back. Well, to me, squatting is a fundamental movement pattern. You know, it's something you just got to be able to, to do. You don't have to be great at it necessarily, but you got to be able to do it. So all of a sudden, this kid in a bunched up position in the blocks, you know, you, you don't do low squatting, but in a bunched up position in the blocks, this athlete is ineffective and uncomfortable, you know, so, okay. And then when this kid runs 11 meters a second and lands in the sand, and when he hits the sand, he's supposed to go into a squat when he lands, but he's not comfortable going into a squat. Oh, we never thought of it that way, coach, you know, and, and I just think that when you do these workaround kind of things, you leave holes in an athlete development and they'll come up to bite you at some point in time. And in that situation, those are two classic examples of serious holes in this game because they had just missed that basic movement pattern. Yeah. Yeah. Just creating the potential for the athlete to get there. Uh, yeah. And yeah, the the heels elevated goblet squat. I've I've just <laughs> I've fallen in love with that movement. I mean, I've always had shades <laughs> of it, and that to me, that's where it's become si- like the simple change to squatting has also been for me, just like you know, just slant boards and heel elevations and things like that, and where the load is. It, and- yeah, interestingly, as a side note, I guess we think alike because I do a lot of my uh, deeper squat jumps like goblet style with oh, yeah. a dumbbell. Or something. Cool, cool. Well, Boo, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. I know we've run out of time, and shoot, I had half of the questions left but i'm glad i got through three or four of them so <laughs> it's okay i enjoyed the conversation we covered a lot of good stuff yeah 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 for sure well it was great talking to you boo thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and ideas with us and hopefully we can circle back again sometime and knock out the rest of these questions i had listed for you so uh thank you again sure we will thank you i appreciate everything you do for the coaching profession and all the information you put out for coaches. it's a tremendous help tough and we need folks like you so thanks a lot thanks for tuning in for another show we'll see you next week